Silversmith. Hello, everyone. And Marsha McDonald. What up, peeps? Sylvia. Yes. I haven't mentioned it before. Yes. You might not be aware of it, but yes. you do have a lisp. I have a lisp, Dookie. I have a lisp. I think it's charming. That's sweet. I had classes when I was a little kid to try to get rid of my lisp. How did that go? How do you think it went? What was it like before? Well, can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> I my word, imagine. I'd be virtually unintelligible if I hadn't had classes. I remember having classes. Were you like Sylvester? Well, I must have been. I mean, I was only like seven years old, and I used to get pulled out of class to go to my special lispy classes. And it was like really humiliating. Is that what they call them? Special lispy classes? Special lispy classes. Really, this is before, you know, the world went PC. Well, see, because it's me and it's my lisp, I can call it whatever I want. True, you can own it. I went to special lispy classes. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. The only reason why I mention it is today's guest, Stevie Savage. Stevie Savage. It's quite a good Sylvia Silversmith name. It's a wonderful name. And you and Marsha had the opportunity to meet with Stevie when he popped over and he was bonding with Molly the Sprolly, the Dookie radio show dog. Dookie, can I can I just say what's great? What's great? Like where where you live, where the studio is. Mm. Like you must have a lot of like really cool looking people come over to the studio because like he's really tall, right? Vertiginous. Mm, that's he's a word. Vertiginous. Ooh. Sorry, I interrupted you. He's vertiginous. Yeah, he he's vertiginous, and he looks like a dude. He does. He's, I agree. He's like a rock and roll dude, right? Yes. So I love when you told us that when he was walking down your street to get mm. to the studio. There are other streets. There, yeah, not just your street. There are other streets. <laughs> uh, and he'd forgotten the number. So I guess he was just kind of, I don't know what he was going to do. Except that your neighbor... He said, your neighbor, who was outside smoking a particular something. A jazz cigarette, I believe they're yeah, called. Yeah, uh, there are other cigarettes. Uh, he there said, are other musical genres. Your neighbor sitting outside smoking, and she just looked at him and said, Oh, you must be looking for Dookie's place. It's the one right there with the big tree. 
<laughs> and I just love that story because, like, how many, you know, it's so basically what it means if anybody, like, totally amazing and cool looking comes walking down your street, everyone goes like, oh, you must be going to Dookie's house. What can I say? If you look like a dude or a dudette and you're lost on my street, people will direct you to my abode. I think that must have been after the the week after that you had the somebody who was recording with you, the lovely Eva. Yes. Who came, well, I just happened to meet her because I was in the studio that day. And she came on a Saturday afternoon mm. wearing a top hat. As you do. Over her platinum blonde mohawk. Yes. And she was wearing like goth eye makeup and stuff. Mm. And she was came tottering down your road on 12 inch platforms. So I think that must give your neighbors reason to think as well, you know, oh my gosh, this person must be going to Dookie's house because they look really amazing <laughs> and super cool. And as you know, I'm a bit fond of tea. And as soon as Stevie Savage arrived at Dookie HQ, I made him a brew. And that got us talking about milk. Whole milk. Whole milk, is that just for special occasions? At the moment, yeah, because I'm trying to use this gut. Right. I've got a bit of a gut developing, and it can get a bit embarrassing in certain circumstances. When you get up on stage, and like me, you, you tend to hang your guitar quite low, but it gets to the point where you find that it's you've got a sort of shelf in the way rather than the guitar's hanging there. Mm. You can actually sit the guitar on your shelf and play it like that. That's when you need to lose it. So playing stance and one's gut it can be an occupational hazard. It's not, yeah, it is an occupational hazard, yeah. Is one type of guitar worse than another for giving you that shelf feeling? Uh, yes, the guitars that haven't got the little cutaway mm. that goes into your body quite comfortably, like a sort of, like my old straight cut, Les Paul hasn't got those fancy mm. bits carved out. It can be quite, you know, difficult. You've got that hard corner resting on your gut. Do you find that when you're feeling not so fresh and maybe are enjoying the legacy of the festive <laughs> holiday experience that you veer towards Fender-style guitars where you've got the, the cutaway, the... Yeah, I think that's a reasonable assumption. They're slightly lighter. Right. Yeah, I so, haven't got quite as much as the depth as, as a nice old gibbo but indeed I, I yeah but yeah yeah you, you do that i mean i used to tell you last time because it was just one of those things you just throw in a bag and play anywhere mm. <laughs> it's quite like Qu quite robust instruments aren't they <laughs> yes exactly unlike their owner <laughs> <laughs> what other activities are you doing to remedy this extra bit of you Incidentally, for those who do not have the webcam facility for the Dookie Radio Show, and shame on you because we're looking great, uh, I can't really see anything that Stevie has to worry about. So he, he can't because not only am I sitting down, but I've got my hand strategically placed uh, oh, over right. my gut. So you, if, you, if I stand up, and I'll go off. Right. He's, Stevie is now standing up, and you're pushing it out. It's not. <laughs> honestly. Honestly. You really don't have He's shocked, to really. No, People it's fine. keep offering me the seats on it's the tube. It's fine. I think give it a week and you'll be back on the gibbos in no time. <laughs> no, but I've, you know, I've joined the, the local sports club, as one does. Right. And, um, I've been in the coffee bar a couple of times. <laughs> no, I've, I've been trying to 
for trying a bit more discipline than go more. Oh, fair enough. I mean, apparently, there is a posh burger place somewhere in North London that has a facade of a gym. I saw this going viral, where to all, for all intents and purposes, when you walk by this place, it looks like one of those posh £75 a month uh, fitness yeah. centres. But then when you go in, uh, they just sell burgers. We think it'd be quite a good business if I actually had a gym in the back, because you just go in there, scoff yeah. your burger, and then you'd go and work off the 4,000 calories. Mm. Although, one thing that I've noticed in medical journals and do you know where your food comes from types of programs with kate quinlan is um this recent assertion that physical exercise means nothing that it's if you want to lose weight you just need to have less sugar mm. i don't know if i agree with and that be about 15 right but the other thing is that most people that i know mm. that are keen sportsmen and a lot of them um, are really good. You know, they, they win triathlons, etc. Well, they're all fucked. They've all got sort of, you know, achy limbs and fucked joints. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's sort of almost, there's a sort of point at which you are doing the optimum amount of exercise. So is it exercise or is it damage? On the next Dukey Radio Show, we're <laughs> yeah. going to get a physician, a yeah. rock star and yeah. an athlete to compare and contrast their respective aches and pains. You are a <laughs> dog owner. You have dogs in your family. So this helps yeah. you to keep fit, no doubt. It, it really does. I do about two miles every single morning, pretty much without fail, even if I'm feeling shit, because it's such a good thing to do. Mm. Walk two miles about 7am every morning. It's a great way to start the day. And then come back and have a cup of coffee, so I'm wired by about nine. The cup of coffee that you have post-dog walk... Will that have semi-skimmed milk? That will normally have semi-skimmed milk, right. yes. Dependent on progress made with losing my <laughs> extra part. So fair enough. So in a way, you constantly monitor yourself with regards to keeping an eye on how you reward yourself. Yes, indeed. And of course, in the summer months, mm. it's a bit easier because I go jogging around the park as well. Right. Which you can't really do in this weather. Why is that? Is it just simply too cold? You can't... Because, it, yeah, it's just a bit wrong, isn't it, really? Walking around in minus one. But I would imagine the listeners in, you know, Alaska, in... Yeah, I've got listeners in, in Alaska. Well, okay, <laughs> listen, if you're, if you're in Juneau or Fairbanks, contact us at Dukey Radio Show. We have listeners in Canada, and for instance, and they're very keen to tell you about how cold it is there. It's a character building thing, and I believe they they you think jog. they go running in the snow. Um, well, okay, I mean, fair enough, but it's not snowy here. No, it's cold, isn't it? It's cold and miserable. Oh, you know, as an Englishman, obviously, I'm a bit of a wuss as well when it comes to cold weather. I have a, a Canadian friend who's lived in London for the last ten years or so, and. He was saying to me just a, a couple of weeks ago, when it was a, a colder than usual London day, that the cold here, being that it's a wet cold, is a far more nasty experience mm. than in his native Ontario. Yeah. I think that's true, yeah. And and he said he found himself bundling up and wearing more layers than he, he would back in his uh, native Canada. Well, it's a bit embarrassing that our entire infrastructure completely breaks down. It's like mm. a hint of ice and snow, isn't it, really? Mm. The wrong kind of snow, the wrong kind of leaves. I know. Oh, that's just nonsense, isn't it? Uh, I mean, at one stage, we had an empire here. 
How did the spirit of the Blitz turn into, I'm sorry there's been a delay on the blah, blah, blah line due to the wrong kind of whatever inclement nastiness has, you know, decided to unfold itself and unravel itself on London life? God knows, just lost our backbone years ago, didn't we, really? We're still a nice lot here, though. Yeah. Do you... We're still very odd, I think. Is it the, the oddness now that has become our empire, meaning that around the world people are watching British films and British television um, despite linguistic barriers, cultural barriers, and is that now our export? Not that the, the Union Jack flies proudly across the globe, but that British humour and art <laughs> are enjoyed around the world and everywhere. Yeah, I don't think anyone else does humour like the British. It's really quite bizarre, our humour. Very strange. But yeah. what, what I've noticed, though, is it's definitely a trend of um, a lot of our actors and, and artists um, just going out to um, the States now uh, because they're getting paid big bucks. Mm. And you've got people like Netflix and Amazon who are ploughing millions into these huge epic productions and we're basically losing all of our artists overseas now which is sad there's just no budgets over here for things like that anymore we're getting a little bit down on all things british <clears throat> well it's, it's reality isn't it it's what's happening it is reality your musical career and development non-career <laughs> your musical non-career <laughs> and development has been multi-genre based and has many 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 different strands i first knew you as the guy that played guitar in alien sex feet oh you did yes and yes. but that's just a small part of your life it is and also quite an early one as well really mm. because that was just the early 80s you know, obviously, that's a long time ago Indeed. now. Indeed. A lot of things have happened since that. When you were um, playing with uh, ASF, as I have never called yeah, them Yeah, most people call, call right. them oh, is that, yeah, is that It's a, a thing, thing. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. When you were playing those tracks in those days, you know, kind of you know, incorporating kind of early electronica with some driving it was almost, rhythms. It's almost um, early techno, actually, looking back. very similar sound you were yeah. using the cr8000 yeah the sh101 the mc202 all hmm. synced up you get some quite amazing sounds Absolutely. because basically when you're sort of young and extremely poor like we all were you have to be incredibly resourceful hmm. and then because of that resourcefulness that's when the creativity starts coming out the trouble is now when you've got things like logic and garage band that do everything for you you don't really have to be that resourceful anymore so, you know, there's no need to be that creative because it's, you know I mean? it's all there for you already. So uh, many different uh, options uh, and you yeah, can spend yeah. more time kind of going through, oh, what's yeah. this going to oh, sound oh, like oh, through yeah. the, let's, the let's, Houdang Let's put filter. a sitar loop in that one. You know what mm. I mean? You didn't have any of that then. Didn't even have computers weren't even really around then. Mm. So you had to just do whatever you did with the very, very basic tools that you had at your disposal at the mm. time. So your coming of age came at a time musically 
where so many kind of mini revolutions were happening, you know, back to back. Yeah. And we were talking off pod. It's technical terminology. And you were talking about how, you know, <laughs> you played in seemingly kind of disparate clashing genres. Were you conscious of yourself reinventing what you were doing or did it just happen organically probably a mixture of both really so i think because the way it all started out is in the mid to late probably about 76 um i was looking for a band and although i'd already had bands before then ridiculously because it's so long ago now i ended up hooking up with with johnny who became, you know, the only sex fiend drummer. But but years before that, we were in sort of, you know, we used to do covers. We used to rehearse in some old cricket uh, clubhouse in Wolfham Cross with some ancient drummer who was about 24. We used to do things like Running oh, Bear. He was an old fart, yeah. I used to do things like running bear and stuff like that. And uh, but it, but you know, I didn't really like doing it. But it, it's all good practice, you know, playing different genres. But what we really liked w- was sort of early metal, sort of Brit metal, basically. Mm. Things like Judas Priest and that. And I think that a lot of people that were into that sort of genre were into that genre because they were sort of angry young men. And, and heavy metal is a great thing. <laughs> you know, you just plug, your, plug a guitar into a mm. marsh and just bang out some power chords. And it's mm. really satisfying when you let off some a steam. primeval thing. And so, obviously, we couldn't believe our luck when, when punk started taking off. So... And then we heard the Pistols, which is basically rock. Mm. F- forget at this point about it being punk. You know, we've just heard it as a progression of what we'd been listening to already, yeah. which was rock. It's basic sort of yeah, I think hard mind, rock. Yeah, never mind the the bollocks is a great rock album. It's it, a, it really, it's a really classic is. rock album. It really Brilliantly is. delivered by John Lydon. Mm. Fantastic delivery. Love underrated, Steve Jones. underrated as a vocal, yeah, and Steve Jones, yeah, mm. yeah. So um, obviously, with we were sort of in a punk band at about the same time. We formed a punk band. Um, we called it Rigor Mortis. And our singer was Sal Solo, the guy that went on to form Classics Nouveau. Never, never go. We discussed this the other night, didn't we? Oh, yes, all Sal Solo lead, yes. ended up being our singer. And we knew nothing about him. We didn't know what, what was going to happen after the band. He didn't know much about us either or our background. Was he sporting that kind of alien look at the time? He was very odd. He was very, very unique. And he looked brilliant. And he was a really good performer as well. He used to come on this great big long leather sort of coat type thing with completely shaved bald head. Mm. And he would uh, sing. And then suddenly he would come out as this amazing operatic falsetto, full power falsetto. I've never anything like it in my life. Absolutely incredible. It was me. It was me. 
So what year were we talking about here that you were working with um, Mr. Well, that would be about 77, 78. Right. And we used to rehearse in a squat uh, that a band, and this is, this is all related, but a band called Charge used to squat in this house in Camden. Mm. And we used to rehearse and record in their basement. Uh, so we made a lot of the early demos in there and got sort of gig ready by rehearsing in there. Is uh, that? Uh, do you know what became of that place? Is it you know a now a million pound house? Uh, oh, Two million at pound least, house. yeah, at least, yeah, yeah, yeah. In quite yeah, a sh- just, you know thirty <laughs> thirty six years, it, it goes from being a squat into a multi million pound yeah heist. At that point, you would not have been able to imagine that it was like you know toilets full of shit that didn't flush, no mm. running water, glory holes, all of that. Well, probably, yeah, yeah, but you couldn't see them because it was dark. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's a dark so, room, no need for a glory hole. Yeah. <laughs> all sorts of things, you know, no speed freaks and everything was all going on there. Mm. So when you're talking about metal, it's not the Judas Priest, British Steel version of it. This would have been the earlier genesis of well, Well, actually, Judas Priest. particularly me and Johnny and then Dave, who... who is actually Yaxi High Riser, the, the original guitarist and Sex Fiend as well, mm. were all massively into ACDC. Right. We so loved bon all Scott that. Era. Oh, God, Bon Scott. We've saw them a few times together as well. So we were sort of quite influenced by all this. What venue did you see Akadaka um, at? Akadaka. <laughs> Some <laughs> Hammersmith Odeon, right? Uh, I think I saw them at Wembley years later, and I think one other time. But uh, they stand out as being really brilliant gigs. Amazing band. I mean, the that Angus and Malcolm guitar sound is yeah. just a, a thing of beauty. And with Bon Scott, you saw the original article, and that's what managed to get into your blood. Yes, yeah. they, they were. You know, as far as I was, were all concerned. I think they, they'd never been able to recreate that sort of vibe. Mm. Uh, once Bond went, that was it. I mean, Bond, just from the footage I've seen, just a, a tremendous front person and so unique. Yeah. I mean, just those early ACDC recordings, uh, just nobody it's sounded a, like that. No, and it's just no nonsense. You know, mm. you obviously didn't have sort of vocal training. Yeah, that bollocks. No bullshit, straight down the line, just mm. brilliantly executed rock. something that only Scottish-born, Australian-brought-up <laughs> yeah. people could produce. Well, so about 120 of them, weren't there, <laughs> in that family? Goodness, <laughs> they've given us rock classics, garage yeah. classics with the easy beat, and disco yeah. um, hits in the form of uh, Lovers in the Air. My goodness, the, the whole extended family of what uh, yeah. the young brothers have been involved with. It, yeah. It's a, a tremendous thing. Yeah, George Young, I mean, oh, there were loads of I mean, even now Malcolm, sadly, isn't able to, to be in the band anymore. Mm. They've got some, is it Scott or Steve? Not Another sure. young, now now played rhythm. So right. they've got no shortage of families waiting to, <laughs> to take yeah, over. Yeah, Flyman Hill, one dies, we get another one right in there. I'm sure in about 100 years' time, there'll still be an ACDC with loads of other youngs from generations. So it's going to become yeah. kind of like the, the rock and roll menudo, where <laughs> they never disappear, they just replenish. Yes, exactly. It's, it's like, this is where you need to consider the question, are songs bigger than the people who do them? Hmm, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure where I stand on it. 
personally. Yeah, yeah, because those pe- those people are definitely irreplaceable, unique. You, you know, we were saying the other night about when sometimes you get four or five people in a room in a band, mm. and there's an actual chemistry that everybody sort of just knows how to read off each other and play really well together. Um, that that is unique, and, and ACDC had that in spades. I think chemistry is has become a, a bit of um, an anachronistic word in in musical terms. I think because we live in a time where it's just so commonplace to chop up recordings and to move tracks around and quantize stuff, that the niceties and the very things that deliver character to a vocal delivery or to a drum track or you know any aspect that's mm. involved in creating the sounds of a band, they're now so easy to manipulate and it's so easy to make things perfect that you lose the the spirit of mm. what two, three, four, five people in a room can do. And I love technology. And, you know, I can talk about software and plugins until the cows come home. But I can't deny the fact that seeing a band and hearing a band at full tilt live, you know, or in a rehearsal studio where it isn't about staring at waveforms, that's still a thing of beauty to me. Yeah, I just hope that I'm not and that we're not in the minority. No, I mean, we used to have jam sessions around my house and we used to start about two in the morning at me on acoustic, um, a friend who was a really good banjo player, another friend who was a really good mandolin player and guitar player. We used to do all this old ancient blues stuff and just jam around and, and, and there's nothing like that organic sound of just three or four people just playing instruments. I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a studio. We're talking about the fact that in the, the 70s and before, possibly even into the 80s, that bands wouldn't tune up to their silent guitar tuners and whatever was available. Yeah. There'd be like a, probably a, a rackety piano and everyone would tune up to, <laughs> to the A. a. <laughs> and because of that, and because it wouldn't be to a digital tuner's mm. eyes or ears, if you will, you get a, a natural chorusing sound. Yeah, that's right. And it would mean that the vocalist would have more room to be able to kind of wiggle around where the chords were. And there's a thing of beauty with that. Yeah. Um, and, okay, fine. Not every piano in a studio is going to be rickety, but um, depending upon where someone has sat in the room, they might be hearing that you know, middle C note or, you know, A, yeah. differently. And everything will sound in-ish. And, but because of the slight pitch differences, and it could be you know, absolutely micro, microtonal mm. difference, it, it would make it sound a bit more lush. Yeah. And so when you hear a lot of those 70s recordings, it isn't just about the analogue aspects. Mm. It is about how people in a room were tuning up and how, how singers would approach pitch would be different. Yeah, although some some of that was deliberate, wasn't it? No, well, yeah, there you is know, that. Sometimes there was a deliberate slight detune when multi-tracking to give it a big, lush, fuller sound. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, the kind of the early kind of chorusing effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a time sound. and a place for chorus, I think, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it can just be misused. What use of a chorus pedal do you like and do you rate? Well, I, I love it in sort of old sort of 
post-punk and goth sort of environments like i love it in uh, the way the banshees and and uh, john mcgeek uh, do you know what fan. i mean I, I love the old the idea of a great big jc 120 mm. pumping out a chorus yeah there's nothing like that Oh, that's acceptable. You can have that. <laughs> but I mean, for me, the Pretenders, James Honey, yeah, the Pretenders, Scott, Brass yeah, and yeah, yeah. Talk of the town. Early police, but some strange reason it's um, people don't like to talk about the police, and they've become a bit of a of a dodgy reference point. There's just something annoying about them, and I used to see them as well back in the day. Mm. And there was something that I didn't in- engage with with them. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe they're a little bit up their asses. I don't know, but there was something not quite right about them, and also the fact that I don't like white reggae much either. Mm. So, Part, I, I mean, yeah, people like UB40. Yeah, I mean, some people can pull it off, but. The whole kind of cod reggae thing didn't, yeah, yeah. didn't do it for you. No. I, that was a thread that uh, certainly you can hear on, on each and every Police album, to be fair. It's just quite strange that you can have a band who were filling out stadiums, you know, mm. back in the day, you know, until they they split as big as they were. People don't like to talk about them now. No. It's, it's quite strange. Well, also, they were sort of the, pulled along by the whole punk steam train thing weren't they they weren't mm. really punk at all loads of bands weren't punk but they still managed to do quite well else you know the punk moniker oh, absolutely i think the the idea of being a trio number one number two the early look that the police adopted mm. certainly was a you know quite a punk oh yeah definitely definitely exploited it unfortunately also spawned loads of really shitty bands playing white reggae afterwards <laughs> <laughs> i was in one or two myself actually oh, really but, well no I was, I were you ever did, in men at work <laughs> Fortunately not. <laughs> you know, perhaps being overly obvious with specific types of musical influences can backfire on you many, many, many years later. Yeah. But back to the, the chorus pedal as a conduit for discussing <laughs> things that pump your nerves At this point, I must tell you that I've never actually owned a chorus pedal. Really? <laughs> yes, really. But I used to love my Ibanez flanger. I used that a lot. You know, I think that's much more acceptable, a flanger. Right. I mean, it's a, it's far more of a, an in-your-face and weird sound effect. I'll, I'll mm. give you that. Yeah. We were talking about the, the Banshees just a moment ago. I've heard through the grapevine, and that grapevine was actually you telling me a few weeks back, <laughs> that you once auditioned for Susie and her Banshees. I did. Tell me more. What was that like? Is, is this? I presume this is post-McGeeck's departure. This is post McGeek's departure. I think at that point, um, I think they've been working with John Klein on some recordings. So this would be what eighty-seven. This was, yeah, it was about because I just spent a couple of years um, working with Daniel Dax. Right, I mentioned that, and I think you know because I've been touring and writing recording with her on the back of that obviously Susie was quite interested because another female artist that she knew about oh, of course, uh, yeah. do, you, do you know what I mean and they're mm. both quite experimental and very very creative in their own individual ways um, and I found out that, that they were looking for someone to contact their manager and spent the afternoon in uh, John Henry you know John Henry yes it's a, yeah, for those not in the know it's a place where you hire gear they have everything and uh, yes a, a very good place yeah so so I think at that point they were putting out Cities in Dust live right p- promoting that and so we did a mixture of the old classics 
and a fair bit of Cities in Dust, which I love. It's a really good album. Um, I had this monstrous pedal ball, must be about four foot long. Mm. I didn't know what any of the pedals did, so I just went in there completely cold. I didn't, say, and, I, and I took my well, I told you as well, my my hand built um, Explorer, which Susie wasn't <laughs> convinced about. For those not in the know, when you think of a heavy a metal big, guitar shape, going back to our, the previous conversation <laughs> we had, <laughs> and yeah, you know, she, she was asking if I was into heavy metal, and I thought, well. Yes and it, no. Well, yes, I do like heavy metal, but why should that preclude me from being the new Banshee's guitarist? Because, you know, I'm sure if you asked John McGeehick, he would have said, yeah, I love metal, you know, and all that. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's just another another influence. But um, and, and also the fact that I had about another six guitars anyway. So it was just that was just the one that I thought would be going against the grain. If anything, I thought oh, it'd be nice to turn up to a Banshee's audition with a metal guitar because it's... <laughs> It's interesting. It's different. Do you know what I mean? Rather than, oh, turn up an old Vox teardrop thing or mm. something that she would have expected. Or a double cutaway Yamaha SG 1000 yeah. or 2000. Like yeah, yeah. Or an Ovation Breadwinner. Mm. That's another conversation, though. Uh, so, yeah, this massive, big, four-foot-long pedal board. So they had the pedal board there. They had a pedal board there. Everything was provided, backline, right. guitar and all that. A lot of it's coming off backing tape. But uh, so a lot of the um, the, the other piece of the arrangement that they didn't have people to actually play like some of the sound effects and it's a lot on that album there's a lot of uh, stuff that you don't really notice at first um was coming off the tape uh with, with budgie playing live across budgie's a great drummer by the way and a really nice brilliant bloke. drummer yeah brilliant love drummer. his playing lovely bloke as well mm. and uh, so, so we bashed all this out uh Got a nice cup of coffee made by Susie in the process, and she actually sang, which is quite unusual for someone of that uh, level to to sing. You know, I've, I've rehearsed next to, to so-called stars like the Pretenders, where where, where Chris Irons just been not been in there singing at all. So it's quite nice to actually, you know, be there with her singing at the same time. It's nice. I, I suppose uh, it's really easy to become a diva and say, "I don't need to sing." A lot of them do. I'm going to. Or be they listening. get other people in to sing while the band rehearse, you know, mm. and all this sort of shit. So don't fuck their voice up for the tour, that sort of thing. Mm. But yeah, so I was just sort of, you know, <laughs> mindlessly stabbing at these pedals, this ridiculous <laughs> sort of overflanged, over distorted noises coming out. I mean, the parts were okay, but uh, God knows some. Um, what it would have sounded like to them. I remember reading an interview that uh, Robert Smith, he of The Cure, um, gave. I think just after McGeeck departed quite suddenly, uh, Susie and the Banshees had a tour, quite a a significant tour that they had to honour. And they got Robert Smith to play on guitar. And basically... I'm pretty sure he may have, similar to you, mm. had McGeeck's pedal board. I think he disappeared. It, it, I his, don't know if it was the same one or not. It, it very well could have been. And Robert Smith, who by his own admission at the time was in a bit of a druggy haze, um, <laughs> realised that it might be beyond his mental faculties at that time to think about you know what patches to use and which pedals yeah. to yeah, use. It's and as which bad order. as learning the actual arrangement. So he, he just pressed each pedal on (laughs) and he said as it turned out that seemed to be the Susie and the Banshees guitar sound and people were very happy on that tour it was a serendipitous uh, (laughs) use of pedals 
there may have been a chorus pedal in that uh, setup. Oh god, there, was. There, there definitely was because I remember it clearly when we did we did uh, Dear Prudence, and I thought, oh god, I've got to get something that at least is approximately a chorus. <laughs> I saw Captain Putting tap dancing on his fucking pedals till I found something chorusy, and I fucking and I just stuck with that, and, and we bang through uh, Dear Prudence like that. Obviously, you didn't get the gig, or else I would know you as. Oh, you were in. Susan no, I, I didn't because they decided to stay with John because he'd already been working with them. I oh, think it's right. probably that they they were already familiar with them and they were friendly and, and everything else. So they knew they could work together. So th- he was with them for a while, but not that long actually. Right. And and I think wasn't that long after the, the band they disbanded, was it? To be a, a quintessential eighties goth come indie concern like them meant that as soon as the 90s arrived, it, it was very easy to be not so much a band doing cities uh, in dust as much as a band being left in the dust by grunge <laughs> and everything. That was a dodgy, almost was a bit... Simon Bates style <laughs> link there. I can sense discomfort when you committed. I committed to it and therefore I should be applauded. <laughs> but I'm aware it was bad. And incidentally, I'm not going to edit that. So fuck you. <laughs> But they were left in the in the dust genuinely though because, yeah but, um, but um, they were but I do think you know Susie did the right thing by breaking out on her own and being quite bold with her, her new material some of it didn't always work mm. but she you know she she knocks out some really good stuff on her own absolutely uh, if you look at the great artists they've all tried to to you know progress and evolve the, their style and, sh- and try different things i think if you spend too much time in your comfort zone something has to give i mean ultimately and with the possible exception to the rule being you know the acdc's of the world or the status quo's of the world rick parfit may rest yeah. in peace um you need to go off piste, you know, musically, or else some people will suffer. And you can become a parody of yourself really, really easily. And but if you look at the career trajectory of, say, oh, I don't know, Peter Murphy's solo career, you know, he of Bauhaus fame. Yeah. I mean, the musical direction ended up being quite different from the, you know, let's do this all in one take. Who cares where the faders are? Bauhaus sound. Yeah. Um, to some very, very, you know, kind of pristine, very well-produced early solo releases from yeah. from Peter Murphy. Yeah. You mentioned Chrissy Hind earlier. Did you audition for The Pretenders? Or I, no, no, it was nothing oh, like that. I, right. was in, I was at that point. Um, I think that was probably in the early 90s. Um, I was in a band called Stone, mm. who actually was sort of <laughs> quite a good hard rock band. Hard rock has always been on your shoulder. I'm going to be really embarrassed when I listen to this back. You might wake up late one morning With the one you love beside you snoring You might wonder if she knows What you do and where you go But anyway, so I was in a band called Stone And we used to rehearse, I think it was off the Holloway Road and uh, Backstreet Studios. It it might well have mm. been. Um, I think the specials were re- rehearsing there as well. See, Backstreet uh, Studios. Yeah, and uh, one, once or twice, Pretenders were actually next door in the room right next door. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll go out and see if I can make a twat of myself. Mm. So I went out and, you know, just, just as you do, break in the middle of the rehearsal. Uh, and she'd always be out there on her phone, walking around the, you know, the 
relaxation bit on her phone and you could hear the band just practicing i never actually once heard her sing anything with a pretenders <laughs> so i don't know if she did or not <laughs> or how in fact they ever you know got good if she didn't sing with them but um oh, goodness and she could record that though and then you know practice at home with it couldn't she absolutely i suppose that she wouldn't want to sh- Fuck her voice up. Yeah, but I mean, to be fair... Because you know, rehearsal like, place a lot. I mean, it's not great for a singer, is it? No, and the PA's the PA are very big, unless you pay like £100 an hour. The PAs the are usually room. a bit shit. It was room number one. I know the room well. <laughs> Despite that, the PA was still surprisingly underpowered. Yeah. You might feel justified. That's it, you're justified. You can do as you please. Satisfy your needs. Now I hope I've made things crystal clear. It's no good telling me things there I only look as though I hear Only I know the end is near I got your number And I'll be calling I am a spy spy word I bring thunder So quit just stalling Don't tell me I'm going to pick a year just out of the, the blue. 1975 to 1976. From the sounds of it, the music that you would have been listening to, would I be correct in assuming it would have been a hybrid of the final dregs of glam, a bit of prog, and then the very first sounds from the, the punk movement as well as hard yeah, rock yeah definitely and, and also there's good reason for that as well because if you look back at the influences that inspired people like Susan the Banshees mm. and other sort of you know punk and post-punk bands of that ilk they will always state things like Roxy Music you know Slade etc mm. the Bowie maybe you know and, and all those influences are, are there for almost all of the sort of punk acts that, that I knew about at the time so but punk lent it something different as well. It gave it a sort of anger and a feeling that anybody could could do this rather than just, you know, study to play your instrument for years. And It's interesting how a genre that lent itself to, oh, you don't have to play that well, mate. You don't need to be a virtuoso. Yeah. That may have been the attitude. But when you start to talk to the majority of those first-generation punk bands who, who had mm. longevity, and when you talk to them, you know, away from journalists yeah there's a, uh, there was a lot of bollocks and, and hardcore fans yeah you know they'll drop blue oyster cult and yes and pink floyd yeah they into will. conversation and, the, and what they never admitted back at the time as well is that all this bollocks about anybody just being able to sort of join in and have a go regardless of whether you could actually play an instrument well if you look at the bands that did get somewhere they could play all right and they actually auditioned for the best plays they could find at the time as well so that was a bit of a myth i think it was certainly a great 
uh, yarn to spin and the Malcolm McLarens uh, of the of the world and Bernie Rhodes yeah. of the world, you know, certainly like to get a headline by you know talking about you know these uncouth folk who yeah. you know can't sing or play you know going out there and making a difference yeah and uh, you know it's not to say that they were kind of refined musicians but they could certainly play i mean yeah. in the case of the, of the damned i mean they even had nick mason from pink floyd produce one of their albums yeah that's right i don't think it worked out that well did it i can't remember now um i know that nick <laughs> mason enjoyed the experience apparently more so than the pink floyd album he had just worked on previously it took a a lot less time yeah um yeah. but yeah there, there was that kind of cross-pollination of uh, kind of musical genres that, that people were listening to pre-1976 yeah some people refer to 76 or 77 as being you know year dot year zero it's where it all starts again but that's a very romantic notion i mean you know a lot of um people lot of looking back at punk with rose-tinted glasses you know mm. uh, and they either weren't there or not involved or or you know they've not remembered it or they choose to remember it in that mm. way but you know sometimes you you remember snippets of it oh god it was actually quite shit some of it it, it wasn't all sort of you know angry young men you know and the glamorous idea that they could make loads of money doing something they love it wasn't really you know we worked in factories and went to mm. shit fucking hovels to rehearse and it was tough really you know or art school people um, pretending to be those yeah who and we, well, we weren't that when we, we really were not that but a lot of those people and i won't mention any names here because mm. it <laughs> <laughs> libel and slander reasons but a lot of those people are going about well anti-establishment this and that and all that bollocks were actually quite privileged ex-public school boys absolutely i know about maybe four of them were like that and I mean, quite successful bands well indeed i, I suppose joe strummer was quite hey, open imagine, about imagine. his own upbringing to be fair if he was open that's cool yeah, yeah. um it's, <laughs> but others weren't no no the, the others i I know who you're on about. <laughs> but I mean, Joe Strum, I think the whole idea, I mean, yeah, he was born in, in Turkey to... I didn't even know, know that. Foreign service, you know, father, mm. who himself was born in India because he came from a yeah, yeah. similar background him, yeah. himself. I think with Joe Strummer, weirdly for him, rather than the ex-public school uh, background, is how quickly he went from being this... Um, Guthrie influenced pub rocker 101ers yeah, yeah. Uh, performer into the Joe Strummer that we know and love from The Clash. Now, I yeah. love The Clash. I do. But, but uh, you know, he, what's sad is all the people that he played with and that he knew around that time, as soon as he decided to jump on the punk bandwagon, he didn't want to be associated. But then mm. it's ridiculous. I suppose he would have been seen to have been fraternising with the enemy. <clears throat> well, yeah, but the thing is about that, that may establish all, isn't it? Because that might well have given him the education uh, to be able to write good lyrics and, do you know what I mean? And understand Absolutely. a bit more about the world. Absolutely. But, yeah. but again, I mean, some of that has to do with being, having a Svengali in the form of of Mr. Rhodes, their manager, mm -hmm. that didn't help. And I think Strummer, I think the idea of somebody that's led a transient life, they have to become adept at wearing different different hats and adapting. And he went into survival mode, I suppose. Did you see early Pistols and Clash gigs? No, the funny thing is I didn't. I never saw The Clash 
or the pistols, although a, a few times I'd found myself standing in pretty close proximity mm. to some of them. I remember one incident, you don't mind me going off a slight tangent briefly Please. here. We love tangents. That I was in the, um, I think it, it's now Coco, I think. I think then it might have been the music machine. And then it became Camden then Palace. Then it became Camden mm. Palace. But I think at this point, which should probably be about 77, something like that, I was standing downstairs at what is now Coco, and I saw Sid and Nancy mm. in the sidebar downstairs with this fairly irritating uh, photographer. It was probably a, a press photographer, but I don't think he had any sort of pass or anything to do it. And he's actually hassling them quite badly. I was actually finding myself getting irritated to the point where I was going to say, Look, just fucking leave, leave them alone. They're just trying to enjoy a drink, you know. But I didn't have to because <laughs> after not very long, Nancy attacked him. And then um, Sid joined in, and then she was stabbing a fag butt on his arms. So, really? Yeah. Oh, so. those days when he could smoke in venues. <laughs> and I think uh, around that time I saw him, I was standing sort of next to him at the bar, I think it was the Roxy, I think it was. And I was so close to saying something to him, but he looked a bit out of it. And, and he had such a reputation for having to live up to you know, all, all the hard boy stuff, mm. that you knew that he would just, you know, could fly off the handle. It was quite sort of unpredictable. So you couldn't just go up to him and say, oh, Sid, I love your work. You know, brilliant bass playing. You, know, you, bass you just would be, it would be so <laughs> ill-advised. So I didn't, but, it, but it's nice to remember, you know, but those people were around and you could go to any club and, and they would be there. Do you know what I mean? Just like walking around and you see them. When you saw the Sid Vicious incident, would this have been 77? I would think so, yeah. Right. I would say so. So that you didn't see the pistols live, you know, you were still going no. to the same clubs and... No, it's funny because, um, a bit of a dichotomy really, because with, with bands like the Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, you already felt that they'd sort of sold out in a way and mm. become too big. Uh, and the whole ethos of punk was having a go in, in your bedroom and, you know, rehearsing in someone's garage, not sort of, you know, getting huge amounts of media coverage and, you know... Playing Signed large. to a major label twice. Yes, exactly. So mm. we thought, oh, I fucking sold out already, you know. So we we just carried on doing our own thing, and and I don't think any of us actually went to see those big punk bands. Did you see any punk gigs at that time? Any bands who well you- saw um, some of them before they sort of broke big, like Generation X, Banshees. Saw them a few times. Right. Um, saw um, X-ray Specs quite a few times. All those Rosillos. Um, I've got connections with both of those last ones, by the way. Indeed, yeah. The, yeah, the, well, that, that's another story about X-Ray Specs. But, um, yeah, so all those bands we used to see before they sort of broke big and at marquee level. When the marquee was good and it was like the a bit bigger version of the 12 bar, had that massive, you know, sticky floor sort of mm. atmosphere to it going. It was a lovely place and I suppose in Wardour Street. When you were seeing Generation X and Susie and the Banshees, in those days, you know, they were probably, you know, either hitching their way up or jumping on a train from Bromley yeah. to get to the music venue. You know, yeah. there was not a, a lot of money being piped into their respective concerns. So no. it would have seen honest. It was. I'll tell you what about it, though. There was definitely that sort of um, slight thrill that you get when you see something 
that's happening. Do you know? There's a scene mm. that's happening. Do you know what I mean? No, and exactly. you, you go and yeah. see a band. You get almost like the hairs on the back and neck stand up because you feel like you're at the right at the beginning of something mm. that's going to be really big and really interesting. Although you didn't think that forty years later you'd still be seeing these people, you know, Sign in the press. doing something right. <laughs> yeah. I suppose, and and little did you know that you'd be auditioning for one of those acts some, you know, ten or eleven years later. That's right, and little did I know that one of them would have stolen my lead singer either. <laughs> of course, tell me more. Well, I was in this band that we mentioned about half an hour ago called Rigor Mortis. It was mm. actually quite a, a competent punk band. We were really good at what we did at the time. It, it, it's sort of almost should have been one of those punk bands but wasn't but the singer was Sal Solo this guy who we didn't know much about I think he just answered an Addy Melody Maker mm. and so we always rehearsed in this in this squat and so that was going quite well we recorded about uh, three demos I think and we're starting to get a bit of interest but then he he came in the pub one night we used to go drinking the duke of lancaster in barnet which is a really good music pub he came in there one night and said i've got some bad news guys and we're thinking oh my god what's that he's going on the holiday and he can't make the next gig he said oh um i'm forming a band with jack airport from x-ray specs we got you bastard <laughs> <laughs> and that band um became classics nouveau uh, of course, Classics Nouveau really yeah. is largely X-Ray Specs with a different singer. Yeah, yeah. So Basically, I don't, I don't think Jack Airport actually stayed with them for the course, did he? He got someone else in. Yeah, I suppose in those Ooh. days, when guitar started to take more of a back seat. Classics yeah. Nouveau, it's, it's about the bass and the vocals. Well, it was quite interesting, really, because prior to being in our band, he was in a band called The News. Mm. Not the Huey Lewis one. No. These are actually quite good. They <laughs> were sort of another of, another band that got sort of caught up in the punk thing. They'd had um, a properly sort of financed um, album they recorded, and it was really good. I've still got that as well. It's really, really good. But I don't think it ever actually got released. So after that, he sort of came to us and obviously hoping that we would do something interesting but didn't but then he went on to form classics nouveau um which was a real departure from the sound that we were we were sort of quite hard sort of um quite dark lyrically Mm. um rock really rock rock sort of gothy sort of rock with a dark edge but still very obviously punk that combination would make me think the mission possibly or um it wasn't as twangy it wasn't as twangy as that it was more ramonesy oh right okay. it, it, if anything i would say it was like a, a sort of cross between uh, the ramones and the buzzcocks it was quite nice. melodic but quite you know four four straight down the line mm. And then when we heard Classics Nouveau, um, we thought, what, what the fuck's this? You know, because it was basically almost new romantic, isn't it? It definitely mm. falls into the post-punk camp. Well, certainly, yeah. They would easily get uh, lumbered with the Spanda Ballets and the Duran Durans of the yeah, world. Yeah, definitely. Aesthetically and, and sonically. So it just made me think, you know, maybe was never really... I don't think it was ever really into what we were doing. It was like a stepping stone for him to, mm. to, to move on and do his own thing. And then, of course, after that, because I think classics didn't last that long anyway like two or three years something like that mm. then he and he went solo and uh went very very religious then he went to oh, this God. um s- remember he went to this small town in italy called san damiano 
And there was some mm. sort of, it was a, a chapel or something, a monastery or something like that. And there'd been some sort of disaster. So he, he released this uh, single called San Damiano, which actually did really well in the charts. And we're talking about 79, 80, something like that now. Right. And um, I think he used all the proceeds from the sales of that to send back to San Damiano to, to help them out. So it's quite interesting, yeah, yeah. He's really, really religious. Right. Do you have any idea what he's doing now? Have you? No. I met him um, getting out the lift at Warner Chapel when we were recording some demos there, mm. and he said he'd been producing um, under, under Two Flags or something like that, something right. like flag, Black Flag or under two, under two Flags, I think. So he'd, he'd been um, getting into production. He'd been doing a lot of production work at that point. But I think um, he'd stopped um, performing as an artist around the same time I guess he wanted to get into production uh, I'm not I think he does the occasional show now but I don't think he's all that busy right I suppose that one of those bands who could easily jump on the revival bandwagon in the same way that you know ABC have done recently although yeah, ABC yeah. have put out new material yeah. but they're those uh, rewind here and now yes we're still new romantic in see us types yeah. of festivals going on and certainly they're a band that's so era-specific. Mind you, something tells me that they probably broke up in a coke fueled haze. <laughs> <laughs> what, classic or implosion, yeah. <laughs> I, can't imagine, I can't imagine Sale taking coke, to be honest. Really? Very, very straight-laced, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was so straight-laced, you took exception when we called him penis head, but didn't really show it. But if you've shaved your head, that... But I think it warrants happen. it. I think that's legitimate. Right. To the, to the point where I actually considered getting a, a marker pen and drawing a glands eye on top of his head. <laughs> but uh, that's probably, <laughs> probably one step too far. Oh. Yeah. You don't look like your Brenner. You look like a cock. But I do yeah. remember him turning up to rehearsals in a brown <laughs> Avenger. Did he help cast? Remember them? Right. So, Hillman Avenger. <laughs> so I mean, he he was aware of his look, and there was a you know a bit of affectation to oh massive all that massive. he did. Yeah, def- most definitely. He mm. was a great frontman to have in your band. Really good. So in between that band, Rigor Mortis, and ASF. Alien Sex Fiend. Yes. That's what, roughly a four-year period? Three years? There, there, there is a, yeah, the period of, and, and funnily enough, I was a little bit busy in that period. I was in a band called, um, at, the, at that time, 1159. And um, there was another band called um, Fireworks. There's sort of a connection. Mm. And the rehearsal place, just flitting back briefly to rehearsing with Sal, um, was in this squat which Charge lived in, this, this punk band, who were doing all right. They had an album out, a couple of singles out, but doing okay on this sort of underground scene. They may have broken through, given the, a couple more years, who knows. But it all sort of imploded. And um, they decided to carry on, but, but change the, 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 the sound of the band and with a different lineup. So I came in uh, to Charge as a guitarist, and they got a new singer in called Moose. Mm. So it was nothing like Charge sounded. This really was quite sort of gothy. A friend of mine, when he heard the demo, once referred to it as an uber goth band. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not far from the mark, actually. Mm. 
we did a pill session we, we got some funding with a decent manager uh, it was doing alright we got offered a, a publishing deal mm. did a couple of tours and um, that was going quite well but the, the feeling was that um, it was all happening too slowly and in our naivety we sacked the manager on the verge of signing this publishing deal with a, with a company called Intersong and um, they said oh well <laughs> now you've such a manager we're not going to sign you up without representation you know we don't want to sign uh, um, an act that's no. not yeah so we lost no. that And then, and, and I was all for sort of carrying on because I actually really liked that band. It was like a, uh, a again, a sort of metal sort of, it was like a sort of metal sort of um, Susie and the Banshees with, with overtones of Killing Joke as well. It was all organic, just edge, right. pure drums, uh, right. uh, one guitar, one bass singer, really, really straight mm. forward, you know, rock lineup. So sort of kind of a heavier, the heavier version of Killing Joke would be a bit yeah. of a benchmark, I suppose. Yeah, it was really, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it did a Peely session, which was really nice, uh, down in um, Golders Green in, in the Dome, Hippodrome there. And then, um, so, so that sort of imploded as well. And then I ended up in this band called 1159, which was um, another interesting band because it'd been there for about six months and the drummer killed himself. I think he was an addict as well. Oh, uh, I yeah. think he was like, overdosing oh, or hung himself. Something, something sort of iffy. Mm. So we got another drummer in. So that wasn't a great, the greatest uh, start. But, and then we carried on for about a year. And then... Um, the other band that the fireworks were competing with were the nine not competing with that's not really fair we're on the same circuit mm. you know there's cliques of bands that will know each other well there's another band called knives and the guitarist in them and the keyboard player in the band i was in fucked off um, um and ended up in then jericho so oh no big area right. big yeah, area yeah, and mark shaw with Mark Shaw, right. yeah, 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 yeah. So Chris Dale uh, and Rob Dowling. What instruments do they play? Guitar and keyboard. And keyboard. So because I right. remember when um, I was around Chris's, and he was just getting ready to go on top of the pops. I think it was his first appearance on top of the pops, and he was because he um, programmed all the. In- do you know Big Area? The, I do. So they're big quang, hit. Quang, 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 he programmed quang, 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 all the uh, the sequencing. Do, 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 do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he did all that, and it was really, it was really, it's got a bit of work. He was a massive techno freak. To get all the sort of early uh, BBC Umi um, 
computers and everything else mm. and PPG waveform synths. Yeah, in mass. the synths and the equipment. Yeah, he had a profit. Yeah, he had all that, but like it was a really early adopter, which was great. Just bring it into rehearsal, and then sort of invariably would like drift out of tune or break down. It was yeah, like he was indeed. testing them, but it was great having, having all that. backing track to Big Area is great and it's because of those sequence parts that the track it really really drives it absolutely yeah yeah because if you heard it the song without that Mm. it it's a decent track but it made Ven Jericho at that time sound modern yeah Guitar-based rock was not getting yeah, a lot of radio yeah. play, and, at that and of time. course the other guy, Rob Rob Downs from Knives, was responsible for all that sort of meaty guitar. He, he had his Charvel, it, that yeah. big solo. That was mm. him. So those two guys ended up, you know, I think propelling then Jericho forward. Mark Shaw he used to live around here, and, and as a, a young lad, I worked in a retail. Well, very capacity. pretty, very pretty boy. He's, he's a very, model. Very he was a model first. Yeah, he's yeah. he has a he kind of looked like a a rockier version of Morton from Aha. Yeah, he does have that kind of almost British Navy. Morton. Yeah. yeah, he's like a British yeah. Morton Harkett. But I used to work in a film hire retail establishment, <laughs> and he and his mum whose name may or not be Elsie, were customers. (laughs) He never returned those bloody films. What were the films, Bill? He got two of the Indiana Jones flicks. Yeah. And months passed. I had to contact Elsie, his mum, and his mum... I felt like I was at school. His mum did the thing that mothers who care about their sons... Um, and want them to learn from yeah. the mistakes did. Well, you know, he controls his, his own money and everything else. Uh, I can only pass along a message, but I, uh, I can't promise anything. Anyway, the next day, he turns up. These films, honestly, he owed something around the £110 mark. What sort of fines were you dishing out? Uh, listen, <laughs> these are popular... It's Indiana Jones, for fuck's sake. Other people wanted to see these films. This is pre-internet, you know, film streaming... And that yeah. Mr. Big Area, he, rock star, yeah. he could return them months earlier. Yeah. Anyway. Within he, a small area. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he runs in and goes, oh, hi, Anne. Uh, yeah, I'll pay, for, I'll pay for these later. All right. Runs out. He, he never, ever, ever paid us back. But he what at least bastard. returned the films. It may or may not have come out of my wages. And then the company ceased trading. Uh, a couple of months later, legitimately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think I know who you mean as well. Yeah. And uh, basically... Um, Mark Shaw, he was to blame. <laughs> he was to blame for them going under. <laughs> no way. Um, but he, oh, just how he came in, he did, he did the, you know, right, there you go, I'll pay you Monday. And he, he never turned up. Which Monday? <laughs> <laughs> and then, weirdly, <laughs> um, the following year, 
he was recording at a studio in Victoria. Was it Trident? Is that the studio that was there? Um, and I was working at that studio on a different project. He had Andy Taylor from Duran Duran producing, and uh, you know Nick mm. Beggs on bass, and it was all it was all very much you know nineties superheroes. I, I understand, and this is a bit weird because you know how the music business is; everyone's interconnected. That mm-hmm. um, Sal Soli used to live with Nick Beggs. It makes I sense. can't yeah. tell you whether that was in the biblical sense or not because I don't want to. But <laughs> he but did. I don't know either. To be fair, though, it, it <laughs> would have been literally in the biblical sense because Nick Beggs is a devout Christian, right? Quite hardcore religious. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm. But in the in the nineties, when I was at this studio, you know, Beggs was doing well on the session circuit I he still have the funny hair yeah uh he had really <laughs> long hair at the time he decided to adopt a nazarene look, <laughs> What's a nazarene look? <laughs> he looked like he looked like a blonde jesus oh, and he just had got off playing like Kurt Cobain, with, then, uh, with he had just got off playing with cliff richard so the the religious thread ended up continuing. i'm really having to bite my tongue now <laughs> <laughs> I said got off a tour. I didn't yes. say got off it. Um, you know, we don't want to have litigious people upset with ourselves. Yeah. He was cleared. I left a note for Mark because he was going to be coming in the next morning to do some tracking, some vocals. Yeah. It's Andy from the video shop. Uh, still need 110 We went pounds. under because of you. <laughs> How dare you? Yes, so that's my claim to Ben Jericho fame. So I was at the Electric Ballroom um, probably in the early noughties. And who should I bump into but the very same Chris that did all that programming on the um, Den Jericho stuff, mm. and who indeed did the big area sequence, you know, that really nice and all mm. the other arpeggios around there. And um, so I had a really good chat. It was really nice catching up with him, actually. And um, it was blah, blah, what we're doing now, etc. He uh, splits his time between um, LA and London, and he has a successful business buying and selling vintage analog synthesizers oh right unsurprisingly absolutely if he was at the vanguard yeah, of synth yeah. technology back in the day yes he would have amassed some beautiful pieces undoubtedly and uh, i even tried flogging a few as well. really because <laughs> oh, some of those early little devices that you used in alien sex fiends have become collector's items well, you know what I, I think i paid about um 100 quid or something, 120 quid for my MT202, which was, uh, I, I love them to bits, MT202s, but um, I sold it um, on eBay for 450 quid um, about four years ago, and I got um, Johnny to sign it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. nice. Johnny Lee Drummer from. Because, well, purely because Alien the guy that was interested in buying it was a massive Alien Sex Fiend fan. I said, Oh, well, I'll tell you what, because actually, he didn't know anything about his background. I said, Oh, well, I actually, you know, we used that on blah, blah. <laughs> and um, so, so I got Johnny, I said, yeah, Just sign this. So you got a marker and sign the back of this MC202. And I threw him one of those aluminium flight cases. 450, thank you very much. (laughs) 
nice. They're, that's that what they're worth now. Probably about five five fifty now, I reckon. Because because Chris bought the SH one hundred one, you know, uh, Nick's missus mm. when they when she joined the band, she, she bought an SH one hundred one, which I didn't think was quite as good because of the lack of um, step time programming facilities. But you um, have the sounds, <laughs> but the the, the the programmability is not as as great. No, because I think you could you you could save all of those sequences as well, but on um, a cassette in those horrible long beepy tones. Oh, you the, could save it in kind of pre-floppy yeah, disc days. That's what it sounded like. <laughs> you know, the long tone. Oh, goodness. Can you imagine having to use that no, stuff like live? Sentient. Well, you probably mm. did use the stuff live. No. Right, are you able that. to dispense with no, it? No, no. I need about, uh, well, a couple of gigs, I think, with them. And um, it was all... There was none of that, really. That came in shortly after that, and it all sort of completely changed. Mm-hmm. I was only with them right at the outset, really. Recorded a demo or two, um, wrote some stuff um, using that very setup, the CR8000, uh, which, which Johnny, <laughs> that was like his baby. It was so exciting when he brought that back to the flat. Oh, CR8000 is like a sort of huge mega computer thing that you've never seen anything like it before. But except 90% of the ribbons were Latin, so it's all bussing over and cha cha cha. And doing the kind is, of music you were doing probably didn't yeah, work. But with, with heavy metal guitars over the top, which worked really well. And then youth came to the flat, which was by then called Fiend Tower, you, you know, from Killing Joe. Indeed, yeah. And um, he used to bring over all these cassettes from when he visited New York and, and did work over there. And um, he ended up producing Ignore the Machine, which, which was not me. I was. I, long gone by then mm. about a year after I left and um, but if you listen to that you can hear everything that we've just discussed you can hear Johnny's CR8000 you can hear him playing along to it with his proper you know real drum kit uh, and Dave just playing huge sweeping sort of power chord it's all in that one single which propelled them uh, you know to into the public eye I'd met Johnny before I'd met oh, you. Oh, yeah, you did, yeah. Through the most random of reasons. I was yes. in a band and we were just about to do uh, a European tour, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium. And we realised just around the time that we were packing our gear into the Volvo that uh, our breakables had been nicked. We had a tour to do. We had no fucking symbols. So... We looked in Gumtree and we we saw cheap symbols Southgate and cheap put symbols. Molly the the Dukey radio show dog <laughs> in the Volvo and the lovely drummer Welshy and myself went up there and we met Johnny who was absolutely and lovely he, and he was staying at his sister's flat at that point oh, wasn't right. he? yeah 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 <laughs> and and um, he had like a, a garage full mm. of bits of drums and drum kits he had the the deepest snare drum that i've ever seen <laughs> honestly this was uh, you know if you put that on the floor it was taller than molly is he was so nice when he heard about our predicament he gave us an extra symbol and and also some sticks as well he, he just uh, was super generous 
And um, and then just as an afterthought, he looked at me and said, I know you from somewhere. And I said, Geordie, I know you from somewhere as well. And thankfully, it wasn't related to my tenure in adult films, but from the, <laughs> the live circuit. And that's when he mentioned the alien sex fiend connection. Yeah. And I put two and two together. I can't stress how lovely he was. And it's I know we can laugh about it now, but we were really, really stressed out because not having breakables on the eve of a tour... Uh, when you're a, you're just a trio, yeah, is is a big thing, and we were you know touring on a budget, and uh, and yeah, the, the symbol was great, the symbols and sticks yeah, so together as well, really, fab. that you you got in touch. Absolutely, See, sort of we were going to go and try to beg more owns happy coincidence, and not steal. And yeah, mm. yeah, and then we met a couple of years after that, but our paths have nearly crossed. Yeah, I know. So well, they many might times. have, but sometimes you you don't. You know what I mean? You don't remember. You're not pretending to have forgotten something that I did and you're just being good natured and this whole oh it's really nice to meet you even though you were a total toss pot at the 12 bar <laughs> that one night how dare you you no, wouldn't my be shoes here, would I, and yes <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah it, it's um, but even you know some of the the venues where you play and go to you know you've you've been on the bill with Allegra sh- uh, shock and I've played with Allegra shock and and whatnot. It's just, it's really strange that it's only in the, the last year or so that we've uh, met. And um, in the topsy turvy world of rock and roll. I think you can attribute to a lot of this meeting up and, and um, you know, fortuitous getting together musicians mm. to Facebook, to be perfectly honest. Mm. It's really been brilliant for, for artists. The one thing that is absolutely fabulous about Facebook is you can go. And see a band, and even if you didn't get a chance to have a chat with them afterwards, it's easy enough to track them down. And usually post-gig, you're still in the headspace the next day of what it was like. And a message uh, arriving in your inbox, and you kindly reached out after a coordinated gig that I did, um, led to us invariably being here and um, on the eve of of making noise together. And uh, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I used to be, I had this little stint of being anti-Facebook because MySpace was so great for bands and... Have you been on there recently, though, My, uh, uh, MySpace? It's just like a, a barren wasteland of shit. stone-laden <laughs> corner of, of the internet. It it's, it's, but it used to be the real bee's knees, Absolutely. Didn't it? Yeah, as soon as they decided to make the interface state-of-the-art, um, sadly not in tandem with connection speeds, it all went... Oh, so it. Yeah, yeah, which is a pity. Yeah, yeah. And then I heard, I don't know if it was a rumour, that Justin Timberlake put some money into it, might be an owner. But it is a real shame. I've left my account open on there. Sometimes I'll pop in, mm. but it's a bit sad. It's like it's, going to one of those really neglected, like, like Chernobyl or something, or a really neglected hotel or seaside mm. resort. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> is Tom still your friend, Stevie? <laughs> Someone might think you're actually dead. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook, I can't say it has the pulling power that MySpace once had to get people to gigs, but Uh. MySpace was out and about in an era in which there weren't as many online diversions, so people were more inclined to go and see live music then than they are now. It's just too easy. You put on Netflix, you can chill, and do you need to go and see, you know, blah, 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 This has contributed to the demise of so many uh, live venues, really. Mm. Which is really sad, but... Um, 
It's, it's definitely changing out there. I hope it's coming in swings and roundabouts and that, like vinyl, people will develop a passion for live music once again. Even in the mainstream world, big-named artists are reducing the number of gigs that they do on tours to keep costs down, and they tend to restrict what they're doing to big festival appearances um, because it's just so difficult to get people to gigs even if you are a named Yeah, it's act. something mental, like a 1% take-up rate, isn't it, of mm. getting people to gigs? I don't want to be bitter. No. And bitterness actually is the next topic here. <laughs> the one what thing what I really, are you really, saying, really, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing is, you are not bitter. You know, I'm you, not bitter, you no. talk about your trials and tribulations, you do it with a great sense of humour. And self-deprecation. Yeah, and you see the funny side to it. Yet there are far too many musicians that I know, some of whom have enjoyed wonderful careers, who have become incredibly bitter and incredibly judgmental of people Mm. and incredibly precious. And not that there's anything wrong with being precious about one's currency or one's pedigree, but if it's at the expense of being able to grow as a musician and at the expense of of being able to do what you love doing, you are creating your own war. And I, I think it's great to see a player of your pedigree who's actually nice and who isn't. <laughs> Those fucking cunts. <laughs> that's, that's not what he says when I'm not here. <laughs> have you had dark moments of the soul? Or do your dogs and a love for playing Every keep you happy? Every musician in the world has mm. moments where, where they can't help but feel... Or a prolonged moment, apart from those brief moments of, oh, I don't know if I can do no, it the again. Secret, no, I, I think, again, we may have discussed it, I can't remember, but I think the secret of, of trying to be as happy as possible in the time you've got is to have more than one interest. If I just played music, Mm. and I was totally blinkered like you know a lot of people that I've talked about already and some people that I don't know that are successful have got there because they are totally you know single-minded about it totally self-obsessed and blinkered to the point where all they think about and do and do you know what I mean the whole life centers around their themselves as an artist or the act that they're involved in at Mm. that time Uh, one of the two ones I've mentioned like that but it does that's not the road to happiness i think you have to have things around that that you enjoy absolutely like you know keeping pets like we've discussed Mm. previously um you know all the other things we discussed martial arts keeping pets all Mm. all sorts of things and just enjoying nature and life in general if you don't do those other things i think it's not uh, the path to happiness you've got to be careful what you wish for as well because people think oh, it must be so glamorous going on tour. I mean, it's fucking not shit. It's like eight hours in a poxy fucking van getting to some horrible venue where people are rude to you, standing around for hours. You know, believe me, the, the, the bit that's really good is the onstage bit and mm-hmm. some of the after that bit. Mm. The rest of it is pretty shit, quite frankly. Charlie Watts, to paraphrase what he said, oh, you know, five years playing, 45 years hanging around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. You know, there was going to be fallouts on the road. Oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> it's why North American tours in particular, or any long mm. tour that you do, mm. leads to so many breakups because you have so much, not so much downtime, it's much, you know, just time, you know, 12-hour commutes between gigs and, and whatnot. And it can bring out the worst in people. And also, if you don't have interests that are portable 
or if you don't get on, it just exacerbates any problems that yeah. you have. You tend to find that bands that um, are able to laugh together and have inside jokes are fine. I remember reading... Well, they probably play together better as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can see it when, you know, in certain bands live and how they get on. Like a group like R.E.M., for instance, I know they've split up, but they seem to, at their core, have a genuine respect for each other. And I can got the idea that when those, those musicians were waiting for sound check, that they probably be playing you know trivial pursuit together <laughs> yeah. uh, and stuff like that and oh, i spy yeah <laughs> i i've got a, a, an rem story uh, a mate of mine was their lampy uh lighting technician for a couple of the uk dates and they were doing what for them was a small gig at the sadly the now defunct, <laughs> well, not far off. It was uh, the Astoria. Yeah, it was the Astoria. R.I.P. Um, yeah, two thousand eight hundred people, roughly capacity. But you know, for REM, I think they'd on that particular tour. It was a Wembley, you know, O2 Arena kind of thing. The one thing that impressed him was REM were there for their own sound check. So you know, they arrived at you know two in the afternoon, and it was a whole in-ear monitor setup which for those people not in the know means that uh, all the stuff that's mixed on stage it goes into earbuds like you it use when you're listening to you. and yeah. you can hear things and uh, but, you know, they still had wedges there just in case my mate the lampy was talking about how knowledgeable they were in all things technical um so like stipe would go yeah, can you give me a little bit more kind of yeah, uh, DB, yeah, boost, yeah, like five more db of you know 3.5 or the or the upper mids a bit more, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and let's let's poor fine, sound engineer. And but they were, it, it wasn't that they were being divas. They, they knew what they wanted and yeah. then they, they got it. Michael Stipe apparently was very very uh, meticulous about how he wanted his balance in his uh, in ear monitors. So it comes to showtime and boom. You know, they open with a a big stadium filler, or in this particular case, a 2,800 capacity venue filler. <laughs> 20 seconds into the gig, he just pulls his in-ear monitors out, points to the, the wedge, his monitor on stage, gives the thumbs up sign, and all that work to get the in-ear monitor sound wow. was just done away what? with, and he just Did wanted you say to why feel it. Apparently, being a smaller venue, he just wanted to feel it. <laughs> he wanted to feel it i yeah i suppose when you're doing a bigger mm. gig where you feel more of a detachment from the audience i mean in, in a way you do but, but he would have had to sort of stay around that area surely because if he, mm. if he you wandered around he'd get a different sound apparently mm. he just whenever he would walk to different parts of the stage I think the sound engineers on that particular tour so knew probably, what he wanted. He must have had a decent monitor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I love the idea that all this work went into getting everything just <laughs> right. But when it came to the crunch... Well, I'm sure that enhances performance because that's what he was comfortable with. You know, mm. it's what you need to, to feel comfortable doing. I like that. I, I like the idea that uh, you know a band of that stature cares enough to, to do that. So you've had no on-stage moments of uh, oh, plenty. divaness. 
Yeah, this the, sounds horrible. No, not really. I'm not. No. I'm not really a diva. Mm. I, I'm probably going to laugh at it if something. I mean, I was playing with Daniel Dax at a show once. I mm. think it was in Germany, and part of part of my um, instrumentation was a big percussion rack. It was made from one of those clothes rails, you know, those nice. on wheels that mm. you push around, and from that bar at the top, there was lots of different percussion instruments, like a sort of a steel drum and uh, a bar, a metal bar, and other things that went across, so I could just sort of hammer those during some of the song, probably about two songs I played percussion on, mm. and not much guitar, but during one of these songs, I was sitting in the percussion, and it hadn't been um, the top bar hadn't sort of settled properly on the on the post you know on the one end and it came off and the whole thing sort of swung across <laughs> so, I was, so I was following it trying to hit these percussion Ooh, nice. it was part of the, the Germans loved it the Germans <laughs> did, must have loved but it but did I throw a wobbler no I laughed ah oh, the best because yeah. it's when things go wrong <laughs> in, in <laughs> it should be if it's not fun it should at least be funny yeah and I think there's a real beauty in that. Did you, with regards to Ms. Dax, did you play on any of the, the singles, any of the albums? Yeah, yeah. I co-wrote and played on Big Hollow Man that she didn't want to release originally because she thought it was too popping commercial. I said, well, we can, you know, fuck it up, basically, make it yours. Mm. Uh, and so I came up with that Nile Rodgers-esque riff. And persuaded us to actually release it. Uh, so, uh, and that. Um, wrote probably about three or four songs I've written with her. Because she's had her own recording studio in um, Clapham, where she used to live. Right. We do the pre-production there and go into the studio and just run it off the multi-track. You had quite a, a non-standard mixture of musical styles, slightly Middle Eastern influence on some yeah. tracks. And but the, the production, you know, it didn't sound like you know somebody went to Sam West Studios well, and was there for sort of budget for that. Mm. So I'd left um, in about 87, I think, and shortly before she um, signed to Sire. But I think the idea of Sire was probably um, Falcon Stewart, her manager. Mm. Uh, it was probably just so we could cash in on their back catalogue. So they basically oh. released a compilation right, uh, and then, then put a few covers in, which I, I didn't really like the idea of. And I wasn't, bear in mind, I wasn't working at that point, but I did feel like it was not a good move for her to do that and shortly after that she'd sort of pretty much retired for a while from music anyway um but why I had think you left because i felt that sort of artistically that there it wasn't really going anywhere for me i wanted to do something original mm. my own thing do, do you know what i mean mm. and, and it was all pretty do you know what i mean when you work with someone an artist who's got a definite sound definitive sort of sound and style there's not a lot of room for your own you know, your own ideas and creativity. And, and anything I did think of would have to be within that 
you know the context of her her work because I came in started working with her when she'd already been established she'd already had a, a, um, one or two albums out before that but wanted to take those out live so we ah, came in right. and then I then I, and, and interestingly I also got Martin Watson who was my drummer in Fireworks the one that I told you about so that's two guys from that Fireworks goth band now playing with Daniel Dax and Martin incidentally was an amazing drummer he was like he, he knew all about jazz theory and that and I think he used to teach it and um yeah but we, we both departed at the same time for pretty much similar reasons right also i would imagine that the music was becoming increasingly programmed in the studio i know that she yeah. worked on her own well she worked a famously. lot with dave knight right who's still still out there playing live in fact they're playing a show together soon i think it's on the 28th right. she's doing a vocal um performance with him on sort of electronica basically unicazerm i think they're called so I'm, I'll probably go to that and uh, be nice to catch up with them after all these years. But Dave Knight was the uh, the sort of sounds guy. He was an absolute expert at doing things like um, making tape loops. Oh, right. So, so, uh, so for the listeners out there, these are the sort of things that Pink Floyd used to use mm. when they were doing things like money in the studio. Mm. Basically, it's a seamless loop. Expert splicing capabilities to splice it right in the exact point that you don't hear the join. So he was a master at this, and he'd do loads of tape loops, different rhythm, sort of ethnic rhythms and strange sounds and things. And a lot of the stuff you hear on their albums is if Dave Knight doing that. Mm-hmm. He's really good at that. But that meant that, you know, taking that out live was a real challenge because we was taking off a multi-track live into the desk. Ooh. And you really can't replicate that live. No. You know, so, um, and you'd have to sort of, play to a lot of the stuff that's on a backing track a lot can go wrong and even when it goes mm. right because of the way that you're doing it and you're being held back by yeah. whatever's on the multi-track so yeah. the audience might be giving you a certain type of energy and the, the acoustics of the venue might make you want to play in a certain way that makes the songs go faster or slower yes. uh, yeah and you're restricted from doing that most definitely mm. uh, yeah i didn't like that um, also, obviously, I think we managed to get away with it, but the potential for a catastrophic sort of embarrassing failure is quite high. Although these machines were good, you know, mm. um, Revox, I think we used to have. Oh, right, it's you a very expensive Revox or, 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 I think it was a Revox, uh, when I was old, is it B77? can't remember the old mm. two-track. And, um, and I was a bit surprised shortly after then that, that the banshees were also using the similar technology and i thought fucking hell the banshees are doing the same thing the potential for that to go wrong i didn't My bear thinking about words and it's tape you know yeah. you know it's quite you know, tape's quite sensitive it's not like playing it off a mac <laughs> you know anything can happen to tape indeed (laughs) well i just think about you know the fact that you have invariably when you're on the road and the the tape is going through security points Mm. and being exposed to whatever type of x-rays are available they they always used to say to us never ever take tape on a tube train which i now think was bollocks but they said wrap it in silver foil (laughs) so yeah it's not affected by the magnetic field of the engines or something but my goodness even though the state of the art reel-to-reel unit which is worth thousands of pounds in the markets as they were then yeah the bottom line is even if it's flight cased you're still at the mercy of Mm. the you know baggage handlers in frankfurt not the Frankfurt's yeah. any better or worse. Who but don't you know care what I mean. that there could be a failure yeah. of your tape. The next Ooh, yeah, and there's just there's so many things that can go wrong. Mm. And when they go wrong, they're going to go wrong in a big way. 
<clears throat> shortly after working with Dax, another thing that I had in the back of my mind that I'd, I'd wanted to do for years was set up um, my own recording studio because I'd been, you know, quite technical. Mm. I, I felt maybe like you that I had to learn a lot about technology because every time I went into the studio, I thought the results could be a lot better mm-hmm. and I couldn't get them better because I didn't understand how to. So I thought, well, obviously what's happening here is that I'm working with engineers or producers that are not right or not very good. And I wanted to understand how to sort of hone my sound personally to, to get it the best I could. So, you know, I got all this kit and massed it over the years. This goes back years. You know, I started recording in about 80, 79, 80 on a little Akai 4000 DS, which you could bounce tracks on. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the interest started. And again, with Johnny, that's how I recorded the early stuff before we went in the studio. So anyway, moving forward to 86, 87, I set up um, a company called Pinks' Production, uh, which I ran from the back of my flat in Lordship Lane in Tottenham. All roads lead. Above a pet shop, <laughs> which was hilarious. <laughs> There's a whole nother sort of one of these things. <laughs> just about that, actually. But anyway, so Pinks' Production. And what it actually was, was it was um, a recording studio and production company in one. It's also very handy because some of the artists that I recorded in there, and obviously the idea was they came in with their utter shit, and I would basically do turd polishing. <laughs> they come what out with, exactly. It's a, a basically a production line of, of audio turd polishing, and they come out with, with a really nice polished sounding demo. That that was the idea. But but uh, a side thing of this, in a sideline, was that I ended up doing session work for some of these artists who then went out and, and played live. Mm. So that was quite handy. So you would Uh, polish their turds, and then after the turds got picked up... I just picked up a piece of shit! I would enhance their turds live. Yes. So you would cover up the turd factor with lush guitars. Yeah, with no chorus on. No chorus! (laughs) Bit of flanger, though. Bit of flange is acceptable. Possibly flange. Mm. Uh, And and probably a smidgen of delay. Right. In certain places. Yeah, indeed. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> at the acceptable time and at the right tempo, that it could be wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, so this has been going on for a couple of years. And then um, I can't remember how we got back in touch, but I got back in touch with Nicky Forbes, who, who I already talked about because he was drumming and singing doing various songs in the Crash 74 band. He's a absolute fucking monster of a drummer. I'd never done anything like it, honestly. We, we've been in rehearsals or anything, even gigs, and um, the regular drummer sort of got off or, or he's gotten the kit to show them how to do something in rehearsal. And it, it's just all sort of totally comes... It's one of those drummers, you know what I mean? As soon as he gets beyond the kit, it all sort of comes Sweet alive. Sweet spot. Fucking, yeah, it's such in a... In the pocket. He's such a beast on the drums. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so... Um, and we, we first met in 1980 when I went up to Edinburgh and I auditioned for the Revillos. And I got, and I, I think I auditioned about 30, 40. And in the end, it was just me and Jonty, the guy who eventually did it. Um, and that's where I first met Nicky up there in the, in the Revillos. So um, years later, got in touch again. And, and he was, um, he had this band he just put together. I think Glenn Matlock was a bass player, and they're called The Road Holders. And I think he'd also had um, Brady in. Everyone knows Brady. Mm. Brady from London SS and the Hollywood Brats. Oh, 
Irish guy, yes. left-handed. Yes, yes. I know Brady. It's so yeah, so so this was a great recipe for like, <laughs> uh, 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 and then um, uh, and he played me, and, and I absolutely loved the demo. It's the, it, it was everything I liked. It was rockabilly, punk, glam, all in this one sort of sweet sound. So uh, I said, right, I mean, so we started rehearsing, uh, and this is the, isn't actually ended now. We, we still do the odd gig. Um, um, I guess we've been playing in that band together for about 30 years. A band called The Road Holders. We've had a number of uh, lineup changes, but the, the bass player after Glenn was a guy called Steve Eden. And, and very, very sadly, um, he used to come to rehearsal, uh, which is after we, we'd sort of reformed. This was probably about 10 years ago. No, maybe six years ago, I can't remember. But anyway, he turned up at rehearsal and, and he couldn't really stand for very long. And he used to sit on the, a stool to play the bass. Now, well, that, that's fair enough. He's maybe he's out of, you know, he's out of practice, mm-hmm. done it for a while. But it was pretty bad. Uh, and then um, it got to the point where he, he was struggling with gigs. You know, he was couldn't play the parts properly. And then he, but then he had a stroke. And no. um, yeah, and I went to visit him in hospital. And, and then they did some tests, and um, he was diagnosed with MS. Oh so poor guy, yeah. So I still see him sometimes, but but he can't really play anymore. Mm-hmm. He's trying, bless him. He's trying to still, you know, get together. But I, I, but anyway, so um, that sort of. Um, because it was one of these bands everybody had to fit in he was absolutely integral to the band's image and sound he was like almost like the Sid Vicious of the road holders oh, right. he was a really good nice. looking guy you know big black quiff and he, so, he replaced Glenn Matlock in the band I believe he did yeah yeah <laughs> well I did put that on Art Facebook once life. and Nick was like take it down okay Glenn reads it <laughs> so oh, nice <laughs> But but what actually happened was um, the the Paul guy from San Diego who who plays with Harley um, really was into the band, so he came over. And, and now what happens is when he comes over from the states once or twice a year, we do gigs with him on bass, and and it's actually worked out really well. So that's going to be happening later this year, I think. And I think we're going to be doing another a Crash seventy four thing with Harley. So that's the Sparks and Rivillo stuff. Nice. So yeah. I mean, it's, it's two <laughs> bands that I love, and you're playing live in a very quirky and unusual way. Yes, which uh, I also love. So quite an unusual set as well, because we mm. went right. We did the um, what were they called? Half Nelson before they were even Sparks. They were called Half Nelson, and I was with them even then. So we went right back to the first and second albums, which are quite prog. They're a bit challenging technically. They're oh, quite proggy. Yeah, the early sparks so, is yeah. very so, so we did about four of them, and then we did the the, the big ones with like Amateur Hour, uh, This Town Ain't Big Enough, mm. uh, and things like that. So it was, it was really enjoyable. It was really it was sold out by about half seven. And how are relations between your man and the rest of the Sparks crew? Like, for instance, when Sparks played oh, in the he, UK? He, he, yeah, he was on Facebook in, in the dressing room with the, the male twins about a year ago. Yeah, he's, he's still like he's still down with him. Yeah, he speaks to them. He's, he's actually a, um, a lawyer now, a successful lawyer. Really? Yeah, but, but you know, he plays drums as well. A lawyer who plays drums, that's yeah. certainly kind of two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and the amount of times that I've mentioned Better Call Saul doesn't better think No, of course. 
Oh, brilliant. Talking of Netflix. <laughs> and you'll probably be listening to this, so hi, Harley, sorry. <laughs> the, um, I've, I've forgotten his name. Oh, wait, it'll come to me. The band, The Alarm. The drummer, Nigel Twist. The twist is of this story. now a district attorney in San Francisco. Really? From real North Wales to give me strength, a wow. number of guns that's under the, the quantity of 69. <laughs> Rain in the summertime. All of that is now a district attorney in San Francisco, California. And that just so happens to be in the USA. Yeah. So I like the idea of, of drummers going on to do things that you would not expect them to do. No, like selling bits of drums. <laughs> well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Moving to Gloucestershire. <laughs> yeah, the, there is that. Well, yeah. What are you doing now? When is your next gig? Talk to me. Come on. You're giving me no information. I've just given you a lot of information. <laughs> so the Crash 74 thing. Yeah. The Road Holders thing, right? <laughs> There's also a band called Knives, which if you cast your mind back about an hour mm. was the uh, early to mid 80s band really 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 good um, sort of post-punk gothy sort of band uh, similar ilk to fireworks and we were very very friendly but there was a big clique of us and we played in the same bill quite a lot in fact they played in the same bill of stacks a few times as well we played heaven together ah so you know barry is an incredible vocalist and i've known him since about 83 or something now mm. um so he's basically put knives together again and um invite me to be part of that so because i love the band i said yes without any hesitation Mm. and now we've got um, another drummer in and um i think and we've got a temporary bass player in Mm. helping out so Uh, um, for the time i think there'll be uh, so i think there'll be um, so basically it's it's another watch the space and i'm sort of writing songs you know, with a mind to possibly the knives using them because there's a few issues with using the back catalogue for right. various reasons. Um, so there's that. And there's my own personal project, which is going to be called Savage Deluxe. Savage Deluxe. Savage Deluxe. Savage. Savage, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe if I, if I go to France, it will be Savage Deluxe. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that at the moment, the, the state, status of that is I'm still writing on Logic, uh, putting some songs together, and I've got a number of people that have expressed interest in helping out and being part of that, which is extremely flattering because I never consider myself worthy of the sort of people that are offering their services. So it's going to be a blinding band. Nice one. Uh, and are you singing? Uh, if yes, I'm going to try it out. Basically, I've I spent about a year uh, under the auspices of um, David McCalmont. Oh, as in to, McCalmont Butler. As in McCalmont Butler. Yeah, who, who's singer. teaching me to sing. He's a really nice bloke as well. Mm. A bit of a trek up to, to where he lives, uh, Streatham. But um, yeah, so... But, but I've learned a lot from that. It's given me confidence. Uh, and it's not so much a, a pitching issue as a, a confidence issue. I never felt like I was a front man. And probably yourself being a, you know... Oh, no, no. I've fronted bands for many, many Have years. You? Yeah, Have it's you? another part of uh, my life that you don't know about. We need you to need cover this in there. a different conversation. Yeah. I've seen video footage of you doing backing vocals with Temple uh, Tudor. Yeah. And those backing vocals were well, they're, confident they're in solid. your face. Yeah. What more do you want? Yeah. Well... A few things actually. <laughs> I want to look about you know vocal distortion and stagecraft, all sorts of things that, mm. are, that are sort of gaps missing. But it's all good fun learning, you know. Absolutely. But it's actually quite hard to practice because I don't know if you've ever belted it out. It's really loud. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's it's like really plugging loud. guitar into a bloody Marshall and whacking it up. Your voice is a loud instrument when, mm. you, when you when you wind it up. I found what I call my Vox AC30 frequency <laughs> range. You know how Vox AC30s are not a powerful amp, only 30 watts, yet you can put them on stage and they cut through. And I realised I'm not going to be Ian Gillen. I'd love to be. I'm not going to be Freddie Mercury. Would really love to be. Add name of singer here. Mm. But... I'd like to be able to cut through. And if I can sound like me while doing so, all the better. And I thought, well, why does a Vox AC30 cut through? And I started thinking, in addition to pitch and all of that, what can I do to get cut through the dirt? Well, a Vox AC30 was like a sort of got a little filter on it. Yeah. That frequency range. Like, all, that, all the DAC that, stuff was on <laughs> the Vox. <laughs> and, of course, and your Vox at that time... It was a 64 Vox covered in flock wallpaper and two cake doilies. <laughs> The doilies made it sound better. That is the fact. Maybe. They might have vibrated. <laughs> Goodness, this Vox AC30 sounds absolutely superb, but there's a certain other sign that, yeah. that normally I don't associate with it. But normally I prefer the silver doilies to the gold yeah. ones. Can we More uh, try it with the, the silver doilies, please? Um, <laughs> finding that, because otherwise it's just so easy to get lost in the mix. But I found that with... Bass overdrive. The amount of gigs that I've been to where somebody with a bass overdrive setup is doing the sound check business and yeah, cut off the bass on its own, please. And then you hear it, and it's this almighty, gargantuan, beautiful sound. And you think, oh my word, this is gorgeous. Mm. Then as soon as the drums and the guitars kick in, it you know it gets lost because and it's similar thing with guitar sounds any any sound it's where you reside in the frequency spectrum is a very important thing mm. and you know it's about it's about finding the niceties and embracing them and knowing where you are in the in the mix and and that helps and yeah you can be great i've heard your bvs you can be absolutely <laughs> fine you, you you sounded as good if not better than tenpole tudor yeah, in well, the footage i saw he's, he's not the world's greatest singer oh, bless him but on, he's an amazing entertaining frontman yeah when i saw yeah. that i thought boy can sing well you know it runs in the family so i i, I by rights, I should be able to. I've never properly tested it, but you know, mum was a singer, her brother, my granddad, all singers. So you have a musical pedigree? Yeah. My granddad had his own swing band, Revo's Rhythmic Rascals. I used to play around the uh, South, South London and that, clubs down there. Bring it as on. a pianist so- and singer. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So as a, as a... That's how I started in music. As he, a kid, he died, that's how you would have learned. That, well, that's how I started. He died, sadly, in about 67, and he left us his piano, upright piano, this was, and ended up in our garage, and I used to go down and play it of an evening when I was about seven, six or seven. Stevie, you need to get singing. It's What's- in your blood. Well, it is in my blood, literally. Yeah, you need, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know that you're doing Nothing it, on you... my dad's side, just, just on my mum's side. <laughs> Wait, so, so that, are, yeah, we yeah, gonna, are we going to be talking about the differences between XX and XY chromosomes and how they may be affecting your <laughs> ability to see? No. Which gene affects you the most? You had music in your blood. DNA. Yeah, it's in your DNA. Yes, it is.
How long have you been studying under Mr. McCalmont? Uh, for about a year, because I was uptown a lot. Oh, I was working in, um, in near the Strand. So I was able to just hop on a train and go up to see Mr. McCalmont once or twice a mm. week. And, um, you know. Does he speak you know, highly of Mr. Butler? Well, it, it, I tried Out to I tried to wank myself in his pain actually, <laughs> but, what, <laughs> but what he told me was that um, his son um, plays in the band, so uh, it sort of preempted that. Oh, uh, Mr. McCalmont, Bernard's. Son. Oh, oh, Bernard's. Son, Bernard's. Right. No, he hasn't. Got, he oh, hasn't I was going to say. Son. I was going to say. I didn't think that was people no, can no, adopt. People no, can David adopt. Hasn't got a yeah, son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't. Yeah, I thought some kind of intervention would have been needed. He's and a, absolutely and, uh, lovely bloke though. Right. And a top singer. I mean, we, we, we were singing together as that part range, of the um, exercises. Word. And it was just like, mm. <laughs> you know, mind-blowing singing along. And he's joining in, you know, thinking, oh, my God, you know. I felt like, just look, I'll just shut up. You just do Diamonds of Forever, right? <laughs> yeah, he he can do the Shirley Bassey thing he's so got a, easily. He's got a, a brilliant um, soprano and falsetto. Mm. And it's effortless. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, goodness. I mean, if you've been under the the tutelage of of somebody with those chops, you're heading in the right direction. Um, Well, I mean, basically, the reason that I wanted to to do that is to find out if it's worth pursuing. Because I've already, as I said, I'm underconfident. And I thought, well, I, I need someone who really knows what they're talking about to give me some honest feedback and critique mm. and after a few lessons david I, I did ask him and he, and he said yes he said he thinks there's a voice there and, it, and it's definitely worth pursuing he thinks i can sing basically mm. but it, you know obviously there's still work to do on it so that's enough for me to to carry on with it what i suggest is that you listen to mr mcalmont mm. listen listen hard <laughs> and and on that listen note, hard too. <laughs> listen hard. The new film starring bow, 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 Steve Savage, bow, Savage McCalmont, McCalmont Savage, Muck Savage, with cheese. Stevie, it has been a slice of gear and non-chorus related heaven having you here on the dookie radio show thank you so much for popping You're more over. than welcome and thank you anybody who's still here listening <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well that is indeed your lot banter covering dogs musical equipment pop culture and the sonic benefits of silver doilies is a very fine way to spend an evening and it's just the tip of the iceberg regarding the many topics that yours truly and our esteemed guest explore whenever we get together you've been listening to our interview with stevie savage my name is dukey and i've been your host until next time may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Facebook. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page. To find it will not take an age Facebook 
www.facebook.com forward slash the Dookie Radio Show, the Dookie Radio Show. The thin white Dookie is right. Click your way to the Dookie Radio Show Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash the Dookie Radio Show. The Dookie Radio Show, the Dookie Radio Show. In this big area of more... Wait, Dookie, more area ain't that big. I don't know what you're playing at, innit? <laughs> 